0: Listening to Campus Radio Radio
1: <realised> Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, I was never so excited. This special Passover Exit episode is a gift for all our loyal listeners around the world. Today we are hosting a very important guest in our studio. He is a leader, a scientist and a talented guitar player. Please welcome Ben-Gurion University President, Professor Daniel Shamovitz.
2: I got it right. You got it right, thanks. Grace,
1: thank you so much for coming to be with us. We really appreciate it.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure. I've been waiting to get here.
1: Great, we were waiting too. So we have prepared and collected questions for you from students and faculty of the university. Together with us in the studio are also our rising radio stars, PhD student, Francisco Achwoka. Welcome to the studio, Danny. It's a pleasure. Perfect. Thanks. And, of course, our loved Professor Simon Barak. Welcome, Danny. It's great
0: to have you here at last, SB Campus Radio.
1: Yes. So, hello, everyone, and let's begin with our first question, Simon. So, Danny, you know, before we get
0: this uh, show rolling, you've already hinted at this, but we have to get your surname right because I hear so many different versions. We have Shamovitz and Chaimovitz and and, and Chamovitz, and so... We're going to probably get it wrong, but let's get this. Let's get this right, well, right. once so, and for all.
2: Well, since we're being interviewed in in English, the name in English is Shamovitz. Um, the name in Hebrew is Chaimovitz. It's a long Ellis Island story from the United States but let's just go by Shamovitz in English
0: okay then. so we're gonna we're gonna go with Shamovitz, that's yeah. absolutely fantastic okay great, great. so no. now we know now not only do we know mm-hmm. but all the listeners all around the world know how to, we pronounce, all know how your to
3: pronounce your name yeah. so what are you planning to do this Seder are you celebrating it in the university or with whom oh uh, no no it's
2: <laughs> 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 yeah. so no Seder yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm quite ready to host a, a university <laughs> Seder maybe next year okay. no we're gonna have a, a family Seder at home right. um, with uh, family mm-hmm. with some of my foreign students Great. with my future in-laws. Great. Um, so we'll be about uh, 17, 18 people. Wow. A small Seder this year. Yeah, it's a special time of the year. Yeah, it's small right.
3: though. Right.
0: Excellent, right. excellent. Right. So so Danny, um, we're going to get started today. Uh, Want to hear a little bit about uh, you and how you ended up here? So you were born and raised in the extremely well-known USA town, Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. Yeah,
2: yeah, making it famous though.
0: <laughs> yeah, you are now. Actually, it is a
2: famous. A lot right. of famous people came from Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. Who okay. came? Henry Mancini. Okay. Mike Ditka, but you're probably not an American football fan. No, Mike Ditka, I don't know. Tony Dorsett, American football.
0: I'm an American football fan. Washington Redskins uh, fan for life.
2: Um, no, not no no. I'm no, a no Seattle Redskins.
3: Seahawks fan, and definitely, I mean, I've never heard of those guys, but we're Mike Ditka, <laughs> Tony Dorsett. I'm probably the Ty-Law. millennial fan I, mean, I, I, I think, think oh we need God. a new course <laughs> in the university. <laughs> yeah, <right>. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we need, we need American football. Actually, it's football, the town
2: that has yeah. the most. Hall of Fame players right. per capita of any place in the United States. Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Yep. Amazing. Oh. Amazing. Okay. Okay.
0: okay. So, Danny, you made Aliyah in 1981, right? 84. 84. Okay. Yes. In 1981, I came to Israel on a uh, gap year program okay. 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 after high school. So that's what we wanted. We wanted to know why did you actually end up emigrating to Israel? What brought you here? Well, that's a... How long do we have on the podcast? Well, we're going to make this a, sh- <laughs> <laughs> a yeah. Let's get the short version. Uh, a short version, yeah. 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 yeah.
2: Well, why did I end up emigrating? Well, if you've ever grown up Jewish in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, you'd probably emigrate also. (laughs) But, I mean, that's the long and the short of it because it comes down to basic Zionism. I felt rather schizophrenic in the United States between the different identities. And it was when I got here in 1981 on the gap year that just sort of everything came together and realized that this is the place where I felt whole. Well,
0: did you suffer from any anti-Semitism or anything yeah. like that when you were in
2: the States, like I did in, in London? I, well, I don't want to say the word suffer from anti-Semitism, okay. but I was exposed to anti-Semitism. There was, I mean, there, there was, you know, there's overt and, and, and latent anti-Semitism, you know. And I think probably one of the best examples of latent anti-Semitism is I was with traveling with friends when I was 15. We had a school trip to Europe. And we were in um, in Spain, and a very good friend of mine came. And says, Danny, we're going to the market here. We need you to come help us because you're good at getting prices down. Right. <laughs> and you know, Danny, you know, there but, was nothing said negatively, but it's just like, of course, you know, you Jew- you know how to bargain. And did you? <laughs> what? Um, actually, I'm not really very good at that. <laughs> or another friend of me, when she found out that I was Jewish. It was in seventh grade. She was st- sitting behind me. She goes, no, Danny, don't say that. You're not Jewish. I said, sure I am. She goes, no, 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 that can't be. I said, no, I am. She goes, no, no, don't. She goes, but you don't have any horns. Right. Literally. Right. She was staring at me and trying to find any remnants. Oh, of horns because Because yeah. the town I grew up in, you know, had was, you know, they were children and grandchildren of, of immigrants from Eastern Europe. Right. And Southern Europe. And so there was this really, you know, ingrained mm-hmm. classic type of anti-Semitism that people don't think exists anymore but actually still does wow.
0: and when you came to Israel you initially came to uh, Kibbutz Keturah so right?
2: when, well when I was on my gap year I spent the last uh, four or five months on Kibbutz Kitura. so that was in the spring of 1982 and then I joined a group of people who was going to be who were going to be moving to Israel making aliyah to Kibbutz Keturah a um, I pictured myself um, living there It was clear to me That that's what Was going to happen But you know What they talk about The best laid plans Of mice and men Yep.
0: Yeah So I remember Hearing you talking And you said That that was where You first began To get
2: interested In plants So yeah, yeah. So I actually Remember it vividly As an American Jewish kid From the Rust Belt um, Agriculture wasn't High on my um, List of things I want to do When I grow up Um, I was actually convinced I was going to be a physician, um, probably because my father's a physician and three uncles are physicians and my sister's a physician and four cousins are physicians. It's just one of those things you do in my family. And um, if you're good at science and you're good in, you know, that's what, you know, I was going to go to medical school, really without much thinking about it. Um, And when I was driving a tractor in Kitua, I actually remember it very, very vividly, the second... I mean, driving a tractor is not incredibly intellectually stimulating. It sounds very much and a lot of fun, you're but right. basically if you're on this big John Deere, mm-hmm. the only thing you have to do is put it into gear and go. And what I was doing was I was pulling um, irrigation pipes from field to field, but this was in alfalfa fields. And I was thinking about it. And I noticed that all of a sudden it occurred to me that when you cut alfalfa, it grows back. But when you cut wheat, it doesn't. Now, I really knew nothing about agriculture. But I had one of these eureka moments thinking, wow, if we could understand why the alfalfa grows back and the wheat doesn't, and use that information to make wheat grow back, we could maybe feed the world. And maybe that's at least as important in having another physician in the family. And that was the the exact moment that I went from being pre-med to being what I thought was going to be pre-ag. And now as a plant biologist, you're probably laughing saying, of course, alfalfa grows back and wheat does. But I knew nothing about, you know, meristems and things like that. So to
0: sort of fast forward, obviously yeah. after that, you know, you became, eventually went into plant sciences and you
2: became... Um... Actually, can I tell a story about that? Yeah, sure, so, sure. it goes back to, you know, if you think of the people who affected your life and have you actually gone back and thanked them for that? So... When I got left uh, Kituwa, I went back to study in the United States. I was at Columbia University, and Columbia University had no agriculture, which is not surprising considering it's the middle of Manhattan. Um, and I went to, t- and I was very disappointed because I really wanted to study right. plant biology. And I went to talk to the dean at the time, who the, and who was a biologist named uh, Robert Pollock, Professor mm-hmm. Pollock. He was, this, you know, the big dean, and I'm this freshman, and I went to his open hours, you know, to talk to him. And he said to me, he said, listen, there's no plant, we don't even have an introduction to botany here. He said, but I would recommend you don't study agriculture yet. You should probably study a new field, which is just burgeoning. This is 1982, called plant molecular biology. Mm, wow. And so I would suggest that you get the best genetic background you can or plant genetics. But unfortunately, you're not going to be able to do that here. So you're probably going to have to transfer out of Columbia. And so because of that, I started looking and one of the best places in the world was Hebrew University. And I transferred to Hebrew University to study plant genetics. Well, I had this dream to go into agriculture. Again, I got sucked more and more into the basic science to finally become head of the, you know, have my own lab, head of the Department of Plant Sciences, founding programs in food security, becoming dean and now president, which was definitely not in my, my yeah. plans. And for some reason, I don't know what was the impetus to this about Three Two months ago, three months ago, maybe it was just after I got a, um, appointed uh, president, I thought about that moment with Dean Pollock in his office. And I reached out to him and I wrote him a letter t- re- telling him about that moment. Now, of course, you know, that's not going to be in his memory anywhere. But I just wanted to let him know how appreciative I was. Right. And I got this letter back from him. So, he says, you don't know what you've done for me by sending me this letter. I've showed it to my entire family because it's really important to know that we're having downstream effects and we don't Mm. often go back and thank our mentors or people who've had an effect on us.
0: Absolutely. And
2: and since then, we've become pen pals. And it actually ends up that one of his relatives is a professor emeritus at Ben Gurion University in the medical school.
0: Wow. I mean, I agree. It's it's so important. I, I had a fantastic biology teacher at high school. And on my first plant physiology paper that I put out, I cited him in the acknowledgements as a thank you <laughs> and sent it to him. So I think these, these things, are they yeah. give them And he such... said, Simon Barak, who's he that? He said, who the hell is that? Yeah, 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 I had no yeah. idea. <laughs> I was, especially I was called Simon Berg then as well. You had no idea. Right. So, so Danny, I always say, is
2: it Burke or Barak? Well, it's Barak, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not Burke.
0: Yeah. So Danny, mm-hmm. I'm going um, to give you a quote that you might recognize, okay? So the quote is as follows. What we must see is that on a broad level, we share biology not only with chimps and dogs, but with begonias and sequoias. We should see a long-lost cousin when we gaze at our rosebush, knowing that we are looking at what, say, for some ancient random event could have been our fate. Recognize that quote? I can't even believe that I wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So Boy, it's so poetic. Right. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Actually, my, my
2: editor had a lot a lot of... lot a Large effect on that. Yeah,
0: but, Daniel, why, you know, why, why, why did you have to put it at the end of the book? I had to read the whole book to get to the quote. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is from Danny's book, What a Plant Knows. And
2: first of all, what did you mean by that quote? What I mean by that is that I, like many other people, had naively thought that plant biology was completely different than human biology. When I started studying plant genetics, my or plant biochemistry, My goal was to study something that was plant-specific, that had no connection to human biology. When I was a postdoc at Yale University, I cloned a group of genes called the Cop9 signalisome. And when these genes were sequenced, they were unique in biology, which fit into this thing that plant biology is completely different than human or animal biology. Until 1985, when they started the plant, um, the Human Genome Project. And I found that all of these plant genes that I had found in Arabidopsis are also present in the human genome. Which, And then more and more stories like this came out. It's actually really funny that in 1995, that was so unique. It got a, it was an article in Cell just showing the, the comparison between humans and Arabidopsis. But um, the more you look into it, you realize that how how what are what are the similarities that we could look between plant biology and human biology without doing too much um anthropomorphism? The fact that we see plants as being so foreign to us doesn't mean that they're not actually as complex as animals or even more complex, that a tree or a begonia or a rose bush is completely aware of its environment. That it's aware of where the sun is, we could say it's seeing it, that it's smelling its neighbors and interacting with them, that it's communicating through the sense of taste, through chemicals, through its roots, that it's actually remembering past events. And when we understand that the biology is a shared biology, because even single-celled organisms in the ocean two billion years ago needed to be aware of their environment so it's not so strange that all organisms have sensing capabilities. Mm-hmm. So that we share these sensing capabilities with plants because we're, you know, two billion years lost cousins from plants. And that gives us this very holistic view of nature that while they look completely different, maybe on a, at the, at the basis of gene action, they're not, so, so not so far different. removed from us, not so know. different.
1: Danny, before we go to the break, um, I have a question. Ever since you got uh, to be a president, do you still Ever have- Ever since, yeah, 110 days. Yeah. <laughs> These yeah. busy months, do you have Do you have
2: time to have fun with science? Well, I still have my lab going on at Tel Aviv University. Um, I have three PhD students that I can't ignore. A postdoc who I can't, you know, I couldn't just say, oh, I'm president, now you guys are gone. And the hours that I get to be there is a great break from being president. That You can see my face light up when I walk into the lab and- yeah and actually even had my first publication already that has a Ben Gurion university uh, um, affiliation. That's I'm still writing that's articles, and so yeah, wow. yeah, the, I think actually being a scientist or an active scientist gives me an advantage as a president because I when people come compl- not that people complain, or people come with ideas or with you know, Or complain. I actually know where they're coming from, and it keeps me grounded in realizing that our goal, or as a university, has to make sure that we have the opportunity and that we have the right conditions to enable science to occur. And being still an active scientist keeps me focused on that uh, goal.
1: Okay. So with that, we are going to our first break. Daniel chose songs to dedicate to others during the show. The first song is Buffalo Springfield, For What It's Worth.
2: Why are we hearing that beautiful song? Oh, a lot of reasons. Well, first of all, 50 Years to Woodstock. I think that's one of the places. Yes. You know, second of all, it's a song about being a um, a revolutionary and mm. changing the world. Mm. You know, and that's what we're all trying to do. I mean, one—I mean, I—I I came to Ben Gurion University to help make it an even better university. I think we're here in the Negev in order to make the Negev a better place, to make Israel a better place. Um, and we just—it's just a song that I've—you know—I could actually also uh, dedicate this to all my friends from Young Judea because that's where I learned to play this song.
1: Okay, so these topics are what we should expect after we're coming back from this break.
4: Your life, it will creep. It starts when you're always afraid. Step out of line, the man come and take you away. You better stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody, look what's going. Never stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody, look what's going. Down? You stop now. What's that sound?
1: And we are back in our special Passover episode here at SB Campus Radio, together with a special guest, Professor Danny Shamovitz, and Professor Simon Barak and Francisco Achoka. So now we are coming to the part when we uh, let you hear some questions that we collected from our loyal audience here in SB Campus and BGU. So the first question, are you ready?
2: Go for it.
3: My name is Dr. Shirley Bardavid, and I'm an ecologist from Stebukel Campus. Bidjuri is located in the arid Zone of Israel, and specifically, the Stebuker campus is located in the middle of the Negev Desert. I wonder how you personally perceive the desert. Should we fully develop the desert landscape as the Israeli author Nathan Alterman wrote in Selmat Beton which loosely means we will dress it with concrete and cement? Or should we preserve the natural landscape?
2: Well, you know, it's not an either-or. Nothing is, uh, very few things in, in life are black and white. The Negev, well, you know, if you're calling Be'er Sheva the Negev Desert, which is definitely in the north, obviously we are dressing it in concrete and in, what was the? Cement. And, Cement. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, as we see in the development of the north campus, the north campus right now actually, the, this huge area, which is going to double the size of the Ben-Gurion main campus, is, if you look at it, it's definitely a desert A landscape right there right now and within 10 years there's going to be 24 research buildings and public buildings and classrooms on that so we're definitely going to be dressing that up and we have to develop that part of the negev both as a university both as the metropolis of 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 'er sheva and for the country it really is the only place for my children's generation to see a future for themselves where they can actually afford to live It's the only place. So, in this, I join uh, David Ben Gurion's vision that the future of Israel is in the Negev. That being said, I mean, look, the Negev is sixty percent of the land mass of Israel. Not only can we not dress the whole thing in in concrete, concrete, we should not. I mean, it is our our prairie, our open, our nature. But um, in every society in every country, there's going to be a balance between preservation and development. And the Negev is the place where we have to find that perfect balance. But look where we're sitting here in the middle of Midrashvitz Um, You know, one could say, why did we have to build a whole neighborhood and research uh, institute here? We could have done it somewhere else. We've gotten rid of the nature to be here. So, But that was the best way of studying it is by being in the middle. So we have to find the right balance by it.
0: So part of making the desert bloom is not just building, making agriculture, but also preserving the ecology of what we actually have
2: you know making the desert bloom is a very it, it it's a poetic statement, but we don't have to make the desert bloom. making the desert bloom is also by leaving it as it is, yep
1: okay, second question
3: hi, this is Professor Arias Sapoznik from the Ben-Gurion Research Institute for the Study of Israel and Zionism. I'd like to ask how you understand the responsibility of universities and university administrations in particular vis-a-vis students, faculty, and the national government in terms of changing the agenda and helping to reclaim a cultural appreciation of the importance of humanistic pursuits and returning them to a more central place in the university. All
2: right, I don't think we have to reclaim an agenda because I don't think we actually ever lost it. I mean, we are called a university because we have everything. And I think if you look at Ben Gurion University, our Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences is one of the largest and most well-funded of any university in in Israel so we have while we do have to admit and accept the fact that there is a reduction of student interest in doing degrees in humanities or in social sciences and we see that students are voting with their feet because they're looking for something that will give them more of a job I mean our role as a university is maybe to to show the importance of of the humanities. But we haven't lost it. We don't need to reemphasize it. I mean, clearly, I mean, one of the great ways that we showed it was last night, even Professor Saposnik, there was a great concert at Ben-Gurion University uh, where there was a world premiere of Lionel Hampton's King David Suite, which was actually written by Lionel Hampton in 1953, 1954 in Israel. Um, the score had been lost, was found a few years ago and donated here to the Ben Gurion Institute. So I think the, I'm, I'm not one of these naysayers or one of these, these, these doom predictors that the, we're losing the humanities. I don't think we're losing the humanities. The humanities have a very important and central role in a university. We're Ben Gurion University, we're not the Ben Gurion Institute of Technology. What we need to do is find ways of integrating humanities with engineering, with sciences, maybe adapt more of a liberal arts education. But I don't ex- think that we, that there's a problem of, of uh, emphasis on the humanities.
0: Is there a problem at the national level with governments? Because we often hear governments, you know, really trying to put <clears throat> emphasis on, uh, Science. on sciences and uh, applications and... Do, do, do they uh, do they sort of ignore or, or, or? no? The
2: government doesn't. First, first of all, yeah, there are emphases on there, and the emphases are are important both from a national and from a personal perspective. That people are looking of ways to make sure that they have jobs that pays that they can afford their, their their futures. And you know what can you say if you if you have a degree in computer science, you're going to be making more. Your your salary is going to be higher than if you have a degree in in rational philosophy. But the question then is, how do we make horses in philosophy relevant to, to building an educated population that includes many scientists? But if you look from a national level, the support we get for students in humanities is not so much less than we get for students in, in biological sciences. So the VATAT, the, the funding mechanism of the, of, the, of the country, does support humanities quite well. I think he's attesting to also a cultural appreciation. Do you feel that is lacking amongst students? Well, one of the things that I'm a little disappointed in so far, but maybe I haven't quite get it, I, but this is not only in Ben-Gurion University, this is all around Israel, mm-hmm. maybe even all around the world, mm-hmm. is that students don't seem to be as intellectually interested as they were in when i was young now it could be that every generation thinks that they were more intellectually stimulated than the previous one one. so Mm -hmm. i got to be very careful that i'm not sounding like an old fart here but it could be though that you know people are just more dealing with what it takes to get to get ahead in life Mm. and so you don't have you don't have Mm -hmm. the 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 possibilities or the time for thinking big we and we need to be encouraging and challenging our students in this way i get that
1: Okay, so um, moving on to your next song that you chose, Iron Butterfly.
2: Yeah, In de Vida. I think I'll dedicate this to my sister. I first heard this on an album on our, her record player, and this really got me going into hard acid rock. I mean, this, this is the, the classic rock of the late 60s, early 70s. <laughs>
1: Okay, Danny. Yeah, come on. I, I'm not sure I understand exactly where I am now.
0: Yeah, same here. So you know, this
2: this song keeps going, Keep it in the background. There you go. Yeah, it, yeah. It'll go on for 17 minutes if Ooh. we if we leave it, if we leave it, and no one even even knows what a Gata de Davida is, and they wouldn't even say because this was 1968. I think the album came out. I'm not sure how many drugs were involved in, in making it. <laughs> I'm it's sure that they lot. It's a very psychedelic <laughs> <It> cover, <is. laughs> right? And um, it's just. The whole side, the first side of the album, is a jam session on this on this uh, riff, and it just keeps going on and then if we're going about another ten minutes. There's a three-minute drum solo, which is just amazing. And the whole thing—I mean, when I hear this song, I just want to like close my eyes, lay down, and you know have it on full blast.
0: So, is there any reason you're dedicating this to your sister? Because it was her album. Oh, it was her album. Sure, wow. yeah, my
2: older sister. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Every, t- every once in a while it'll come on the radio and I call her and she'll stop over at the side of the road and she'll listen to it also
1: great okay so let's go move forward to uh, other questions from students now
5: hi my name is Noya from Israel and I'm a student in the Water Research Institute in Stebocher Campus I would like to ask you if and how you have plans to make more interactions between our campus and the main one especially in the aspect of let the bachelor students be more familiar with our campus
2: wow that's ah uh, an important question. All right. So first of all, in my, in my vision for the university, the Staboka campus is integral to the identity of Ben Gurion University as a whole. Um, I can't imagine Ben University without the study of the desert. And actually, my my original familiarity with the university comes from my colleagues and friends that I have here on the Staboka campus. And now the question really is, how do we integrate the campus, this campus, with the main one? Um, you talk about undergraduate students, which is it's it's a touchy subject from a from an administrative point of view, but I do believe that we have to find some way of having undergraduate students integrated here as an undergraduate program, maybe in desert studies, in biology and agriculture, in um, water studies there has to be some type of integration going on we have to find the right model for it um, it will make stable care a much stronger campus and will make the university much stronger in the end so do you actually see um, bachelor students studying here well the, the, a- well, you know, the whole one of the pro- I would love to have an undergraduate program here we only have one problem where would we put them so exactly. you know mm-hmm. can we build dormitories for let's say 3,000 students here is there room to do it or do we bus students in, would students actually come, or do we maybe have to maybe export the lectures from Sdebo up to the main campus, exposing it in Be'er Sheva and then having them come down here to do their graduate work. That's probably gonna be the easier paradigm to implement in the near future. I do have a dream of building another student village here for undergraduate students but that takes a huge amount of resources. We'll see if we get to that. Yeah,
1: there is this, uh, you're probably aware of that, the the, the amazing uh, intern, summer intern uh, uh, plan program that are coming, the the undergraduates come to spend six weeks here in the labs Mm -hmm. doing a a project.
2: And where do they sleep?
1: Uh, In the dorms that are empty at that period. Okay, next question. Hi, my name is Michelle Oscar. I'm from India and I'm a PhD student in the Tebukhar campus. I study plant molecular biology. And my question for the new BGO president is, when do you usually get up and go to bed? And how do you balance your work with your personal pursuits?
2: Well, let's start with the last one. How do I balance work with it? I don't think a president has personal pursuits is what I started to understand. <laughs> and you, as soon you understand why, because so um, I wake up at, Quarter to six or five thirty, and I'm driving by six thirty every morning uh, to get to the university, and um, I get home around nine o'clock at night, um, which doesn't really leave. yeah. So yeah. So I'm I'm on the job between six thirty in the morning and nine o'clock at night. Um, I try not.
1: You have some kind of apartment in 'er Beersheva also. So uh,
2: we. I was given. The university has given me an apartment in 'er Beersheva. It's not finished yet. Right now, I'm actually sleeping in the Utel. Um, the, the, the dormitories across the street from the main campus, oh. um, one or two nights a week. My family still lives in Hodeshoon. We're not going to, my daughter's in high school. Um, it's, there's, there's a whole question on how we, trans, how we transit the entire family down to Be'er Sheva, but I will definitely be staying here as many nights a week once the apartment is ready. But even then, it'll still be, those are the hours that a president needs. It's just, it's 24-7. I try not to work on Shabbat, but um, even that is uh, is difficult with all the emails coming in and everything.
1: Wow.
3: I reckon I saw your tweet about moving
2: from Hodesharon. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we've already moved part of the, uh, oh, the part stuff. of the, mm-hmm. um, the the furniture and everything. We're okay. into, there's a few more renovations that need to be completed on the apartment. So in other
0: words, you don't really sleep, Danny.
2: I mean, if you've got your <laughs> lab as well, right.
0: and the president. So you don't really have to get in and out of bed.
2: I could sleep in the car. On the way down. Yeah, on the way down, you know, yeah. Okay.
1: So before we hear the last question, let's go to this uh, sweeper. Hi,
0: my name is Chaim Hames. I'm the director of Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, and you are listening to SB Radio, coming
1: from Stebokir. Okay.
2: Wow.
1: So. I am Dr. Ido Barzeev, an applied environmental microbiologist from the Zuckerberg Institute for Water Research. I have a relevant question to these days, which is, how can the Blauschen Institutes for Desert Research specifically and the university as a whole increase its national and international visualization and pursue academic excellence?
2: The answer is actually simple. Just by a commitment to that last word he said is excellence. We need to remember that when we talk about the influence of Harvard or of MIT or of Stanford or of Oxford or Cambridge on society, that their influence emanates from their excellence. You know, no one talks about the community college next to Oxford or to Cambridge, or you know, you less hear about Boston College than you do about Harvard or MIT, and it's because of their excellence. So, if we want to have an international reputation, if we want to have be known internationally, the best way about doing that is to be being excellent. The better research we do, the more impact our research has, the more people will know us, and then. The more influence we'll be having on the world. Yeah, there are certain things we can do by through outreach. For example, SB Radio, or Ooh. through yeah, shout out to <laughs> SB Radio, yes, <laughs> or through you know through 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 public media. And there's definitely things we have to do to increase our our our, our outreach. Oh, mm-hmm. And by bringing foreign students to um, to Ben Gurion University, such as how the Blaustein Centers do, mm-hmm. the research labs do, but. Um, But if we're doing mediocre work, it's not worth anything.
1: So what is so unique about Ben-Gurion University? What is the main message that uh, distinguishes us from different universities?
2: What's unique about Ben-Gurion is our mission and importance to the ecosystem that we stay in. You know, all universities want to be excellent. All universities want to be doing important research. But very few universities have a local impact and a local importance as we do. And the way I, this is going to sound a little bombastic and I'm not trying to go say anything, you know, against any other university, but for example, if you would take um, the Technion, great university, you know, they now have a campus in Manhattan, in New York. Mm -hmm. If you would take the Technion, pick it up, move it to New York. I'm not sure that the people at the Technion would know any difference about what they were doing. And I'm not sure right now if Haifa would feel that they were gone or not. You know, definitely for Tel Aviv University, the same thing. You know, Hebrew University is a whole other problem in, in, in Jerusalem because it's so fragmented. But there is no doubt that if you would pick up Ben-Gurion University and move it, let's say, to New Mexico, which is also in the middle of the desert, the people at Ben-Gurion University would all of a sudden have felt that they're losing their, their mission to be helping the South. And if we look at what would the effect on Be'er Sheva, I mean, Be'er Sheva's ecosystem would fall apart. You know, we're the only university that had to build its own um, industrial high-tech industrial zone. You know, five years ago, there were no high-tech jobs in Be'er Sheva. Ben-Gurion University is a major partner, together with the municipality and uh, and Gaviam Company, in building the industrial park. Now there are over 3,000 high-tech jobs in Be'er Sheva. Within a decade, we predict that there'll be between 10,000 and 15,000 jobs and all because of where Ben-Gurion University is in Beersheva. So our influence on Beersheba, on the south and therefore on all of Israel is much larger than the influence of any other university in Israel on its local system.
1: So what you basically said is that we continue directly the vision of Ben-Gurion.
2: Clearly that's what I said.
1: Yes. I see you around in the in the social media, in the Facebook very active. And I wonder if you recommend uh, all students, faculty, admins of the university to be involved in social media. Oh, yeah.
2: Social media is, it sounds so, so banali. It's where it's happening now. So from a science point of view, Twitter is a great, great tool Mm -hmm. for all the students. I'll definitely be on Twitter. Even if you're just passive, it's a great way of finding new articles, new things going on. If you're following the right scientists. And as a scientist, the statistics have shown that if you're out there tweeting about what you're doing, um, there's actually a higher chance that your articles are going to be accepted and that you're going to be funded. Um, Yeah, there there are a lot of studies that have been shown about that. Because in the end, if someone knows, you know, I tweet, therefore I am, you know, a scientist (laughs) who's who's just in his lab you know if if a tree falls in a wood do we, you know yeah. and no, does anyone hear it right. so if you're doing science and no and you've never published anything you're not really doing science because right. you have to publish it and if no one knows about what you're doing then you you know you're missing part of the world and a lot of the science today is being talked about on twitter and you also can get great feedback that way I haven't think, quite figured out how to use Instagram yet. If you got a, you know.
1: yeah, I think it's simple. I mean, uh, no, I know how to push. The, the, I know yeah. how to push the
2: button. But I a lot of figured selfies,
3: out. probably, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I think Twitter, Twitter works best for visibility, as you're saying, in for, terms in, of in, yeah. for science, yeah, for yeah. science right? But well,
2: it's amazing
0: that all the journals now show you your infometrics, what you got on Twitter, what exactly. you got exactly. on, uh, yeah, on you know, Mandalay. We also, you know, I was things.
2: involved in an article which was actually just accepted last week about plants listening to insects. Um, is coming out of the lab of Lila Hadani at Tel Aviv University. Um, I'm one of the authors on this paper. It's a paper that we've had a large a large amount of trouble publishing. Um, and finally, we put it on bio-archives just because we were afraid that we were going to be scooped. It's first time we put it on a preprint server, and we were shocked, absolutely shocked by the response. It is the most tweeted uh, article on the bio-archives almost ever amazing wow. yeah amazing. you know and Sorry. that and what was funny about it that one of the article one of the journals that had rejected the paper then contacted us to interview us about this paper that they had rejected that was on the bioarchive <laughs> so you know
3: yeah the power of social media yeah so like, it
2: probably helped the article be accepted
3: yeah. in the end okay okay what's your handle can can students follow you do you do you mind yeah, yeah. oh
2: mm-hmm. no no the students i don't like so yeah definitely follow me on twitter okay um Facebook. I try to keep more for my more personal things, right. you know. So it's like I get a little weirded out when students try to follow me on Facebook, but maybe they should. Any, maybe it's just my thing, you know. Um, so I try to keep, you know. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay. So what's your what's your Twitter handle for anyone who would like to follow you? It's a
2: good question. I don't know, but if you search for Daniel Shamovitz, I we'll guess you'd find. I don't know my Twitter handle. Probably okay. D Shamovitz or Daniel Shamovitz or Danny Shamovitz. There's not that many people with that last name. You can find <laughs> okay. me. Okay. Okay, now we'll move on
1: to a song that you wish to dedicate. Uh, this is a Chris Williamson Waterfall
2: song. Yeah, so I'm going to dedicate this both to my wife and to my family. This is a song that um, also I learned from my, my sister in the 70s, but um, I used to play it also when I was in a band, um, and I've played it many times for my wife, and my kids played it for me. They also have a band when at a going-away party for me from Tel Aviv University.
1: So we'll be back right after this song.
5: A rainy day Just
0: Far, far, away. far, away. SB Campus Radio. Radio broadcasting Radio. to the universe.
3: So we're right here with the president of ben University of the Negev, uh, Professor Danny Shamovitz. Mr. President, let's talk about leadership. Okay. Um, Pesach is coming around and... Um, the story of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt uh, rests heavily on the leadership of Moses. He was in many ways their shepherd, and you are now our shepherd. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> pressure I, there. No pressure there. Okay, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> but what really is a distinguishing trait in your leadership or some of the distinguishing features in your leadership that make your presidency or will, make, will define your presidency at BGU?
2: I'm a little uncomfortable talking about my own style of leadership. I'd rather someone else see, you know, what they're, but Mm -hmm. the leadership that I'm going to be bringing or I'm trying to bring to the university is first of all, one of, uh, of, of listening and of trying to get uh, uh, and of enabling people to work together. Um, A friend of mine once said something that everything I ever needed to learn in life I learned in Young Judea, which was the youth movement I grew up in. Right. And some of the many of the techniques that we use in youth movements in as as children, we should also just be using in our in our daily life. So, for example, the first my first initiative as president is something called BGU Y O U Mm -hmm. Impact, Mm -hmm. which is an initiative which is bringing together students. Administrative staff, technical staff, and faculty together in groups to talk about what we need to do to make the university better. I'm a you know there's two approaches. Often organizations, large universities, will pay millions of dollars to to consulting groups such as from Shaldor or from Ernst and Young to come and tell you what you already know anyway. Mm-hmm. I have complete confidence in the people at Ben-Gurion University. The people that I've met who are completely completely committed to the university that we actually know what we need to do in order to, we know what the problems are and we know what our strengths are. And if we learn to listen to each other and to not be critical and to not be paranoid and to actually be able to make the difficult decisions that we have the knowledge in ourselves to lead the university to the next level. Part of that also means that we have to, um, we have to empower leadership. I don't believe in a centralized leadership. I think that deans need the power to make decisions. I hate the word power. But they need to have the responsibility and the resources to decide what is the agenda for their faculty. I think heads of departments need to also have resources. You know, I found that in the first few months, people came to me with the smallest of problems. Right. If the university is going to be using the president to solve problems, The university is never going to get anywhere because that means that me and other senior uh, uh, administrators don't have time to be thinking of strategy. What the university needs to move forward is a change in strategy, not a problem solver. Uh, I don't think I was brought in to decide if a thousand shekels should go to one department versus to another department. So we need Mm -hmm. to, you know, initiate a change in management styles um, and getting people to take responsibility for their decisions.
3: Okay, Winston, Winston Churchill is quoted as saying, "Success consists of going from failure to failure uh, without losing enthusiasm." I don't know if, in, in your leadership in the past, you've experienced any failures, and if you're comfortable talking about how this moment, you know, enabled you to well, fail I t- forward.
2: I I tend not to remember failures mm-hmm. or bad. Th- It's just one of the, you know, I have a, a, I don't know if it's a unique or it's good or it's bad ability not to get stuck on things that didn't work well, but to just go forward. And someone will remind me, so I was talking about being, so I was Dean for four and a half years. Right. And a close friend of mine said, God, it was so difficult for you in the beginning. I said, Oh really? She goes, Oh, you don't remember how, how how you were suffering. You're having trouble sleeping. I I I don't remember it at all. Hmm. You know, I sort of remember it all as you know being really good. But I, so I guess there were difficulties going along the way, but as long as we keep looking forward and our eye on what our goal is, then any difficulties are not really as important. And we also need to keep things in perspective. Right. You know, right. uh, I've been quoting Kissinger a lot. Mm-hmm. And so Henry Kissinger said, you know, was asked, "Why is academic politics so bad?"
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And you know what the answer is. Because the stakes are so low, Wow. you know what we have to keep in perspective is what we're making decisions about, you know right. So for example, should Department A or Department B be able to hire someone? You know, in the large scale of things, if you don't make a hire this year, it's not going to be the worst thing in the world. You know, should this department have a conference or that department have a conference? and we, we will argue about this for, for for hours how important it is in large scale things. Let's keep everything in perspective. What are the really big decisions we need to make that are going to make the university become the leading university in Israel? And I really believe that right now we have a unique constellation of events, which are one, the university being doubling its size to the North Campus, two, the army coming down to right. moving mm-hmm. down to the South. Um, those two things together, together with our new, um, uh, industrial park and new leadership in the university, we really have the potential to become Israel's leading university. If I didn't believe that I wouldn't have come here. Um, very quickly, we're going to be the second largest university in Israel. That's unthinkable. If for someone who was here 20 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, if someone would have said that we're going to be larger than the Hebrew University, oh, no, never in a million years. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm.
3: We're, we're, we're pretty close on the way to being there. Great. I mean, this partly shapes a bit of your vision in the coming years. But what do we expect to see in the, you know, in the near future? And, and, and this is, of course, all, all. Well,
2: we're going to see a lot of, uh, well, unfortunately, we're going to be seeing a lot of building. Building. Some of this building mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's necessary for the university to grow. So, for example, we talked about the interest of students in studying computer science and in engineering. We can't um, accept half of the students who want to come to more, you know, who, want to, who actually uh, have the, the ability to study these subjects because so there's just no more room. The campus is, is completely um, cramped. Um, for the soldiers who are going to be coming down and be taking part in our regular programs. That's why the, one of the first buildings that's going to be built on the north campus is the classroom buildings. Anyone who's been up in the main Marcus campus right now realizes that there's no, almost no room to teach anymore. Students are running from one side of the campus to the other to find an open classroom. Um, and even if we look at the way we look at ourselves, you know, we are now a large, modern university. 20,000 students, almost 900 faculty members, and our largest auditorium, Zonenfeld, 400 people. It doesn't even have a backstage area for having large performances. You know, so part of this, we have like this, still the small school mentality. So one of the things that's going to be built hopefully within the next five years in the North Campus is a large auditorium, music hall, convention center type place, so that we can actually have a convention in Beel Sheva. I know we sometimes we want to host a congress, then we end up having it in Tel Aviv because there's nowhere to do it in Beel Sheva.
0: One of the things, though, for instance, Danny, I was thinking as you're saying that, for having a convention center, which is going to draw so many people down for conventions, for concerts, how is the partnership with the city of Beel
2: Sheva going to help in order to people have to sleep somewhere? Well, as we speak, I was told that there is a tender going out for a hotel to be built right next to the campus, uh, adjacent to the industrial zone, um, and right across the street from my apartment, actually, that the tender has finally gone out for another hotel in Belshovo. But there, over the past year, there have been two or three boutique hotels that have opened right. up in the old city. Mm-hmm. Um, things are starting to happen. So by the time that we build this convention center um, visitors hall, um, I'm convinced that there will be other options in in Beersheba. and first and you mentioned it's a complete partnership between Bevava and the university between Mayor Rubik and myself you know I don't think there's many places where the head with the president of the university and the mayor are working as complete equal partners and seeing each other as essential for the future of the uh, of the region
1: if they miss a place they can come to our guest house <laughs> right. here on the cliff <laughs> okay
0: so Danny, uh, we're going to start wrapping things up, and so um, it's coming up to Pesach and Easter as well. So do you have a message for all the BGU community who are celebrating these holidays? Well,
2: I think we need to take the time off, to take the few days to be with our family, with our friends, to put things in perspective, to re rededicate ourselves to our mission as students and as scientists, and to just enjoy the spring. Absolutely.
1: Great. So Danny, can we give you Shaila Chag?
2: of course you can
1: okay so you have this mug beautiful mug that you are uh, drinking from during the show this is yours now wow my own sb (laughs) campus
2: radio so what i'm holding is a mug with with an ibex uh, having earphones on it and it says on the bottom sb campus radio exactly
1: and you uh, surely need something to fill it in with right you're going to give
2: me my own spring
1: uh, we're going to give you a, a boutique bottle from the local brewery wow. of Sedeboker campus.
2: What's the brewery called?
1: Uh, Mid-beer. Mid-beer. Yes. Whoa,
2: but it says Heineken on
1: it. It's just a recycled bottle. We oh, believe okay. in there recycling. <laughs> there you go. Great. And it's a porter-style beer. Great. Thanks a lot. And it's really good. Um, and uh, so we want to thank you, Danny. Oh, My, my pleasure. Uh, it was a real pleasure that you spent time with us here on the campus. And if, audience, if you want to learn more about Professor Daniel Chamovitz's science achievements, you're invited to visit our website at sbcampusradio.com and listen to our interview with his supervisor, Professor Jing Guan Deng, in our episode called Why Cops Oppress Plants. Or just read Professor Chamovitz's book, What a Plant Knows. We were Professor Simon Barak.
3: It's Francisco right here. Thanks a lot.
1: Raj, the photographer, thank you very much. Professor Daniel Shamowitz. I was Buzi Aviv. And And you still are Buzir Aviv. I I am. I'm just so excited. So everything goes uh, like uh, Balagan. But uh, we leave you with a special song for Pesach. Enjoy your vacation wherever you are. We love you. SB Campus Radio saying Chag Sameach.
5: i
4: more to clean than can ever be cleaned. Grab a candle and search for the crown.
5: days we're eating the matzah, so put that bread away.
4: We had to hurry from the land we were slaves.
5: So we're coming free, culinary. I'm eating a matzo. And who doesn't love some good matza? What's a matzah? Nothing. What's a matza with you? <laughs> we had to hurry.
1: תמיד התחנית.
5: כן.
1: תחננים נוספים, תחוץ לישמה ב sbcampusradio.com sb campus radio, nekuda com, עם כל הדברים הטובים שיש לנגב להציע.